0: Welcome to everyone in our main sanctuary and those who are in our overflow area. We are glad that you're with us this morning, enjoying the presence of God, power of God. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then uh, we're going to dive into the message. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're amazing, Lord. Really, words cannot capture the wonder that you form in our hearts. We thank you that you've given us a spirit, God, of of revelation to open our eyes. We ask that that revelation would abide and would be strong, that as we walk with you day by day, it'd be like us with Adam and Eve in the garden, Lord, just hearing your footsteps and having that sweet fellowship. We thank you that your word is meat, that it's strong, that it strengthens us, it corrects us, it reproves us, and it causes us to grow in you. So let our hearts be open this morning, God, to hear what the Spirit is saying. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me to the book of Joel. We're continuing on in our series from the Minor Prophets. And I want to just bring up this map to help orientate us a little bit once again with regard to the focus of what we're preaching about. As you know, as we uh, work through the book of Joshua, we realize that there is these tribes that God brought together to form into the nation of Israel. And God began a monarchy, starting with Saul. And then after Saul, there was David. And after David, there was Solomon. And because of some grave mistakes that Solomon made, God split the nation into two parts. And you see the northern kingdom there, which is Israel. And you see the southern kingdom there, which is Judah. This framework is extremely important to understand as you're reading through the prophets because you need to know who their audience is. Who are they preaching to? And the two main divisions in whom the prophets preach to is the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom. Now, Pastor John, the last two weeks, preached through two minor prophets, Amos and Hosea. And it turns out that's done in terms of the prophetic words that were given to the northern kingdom. As we said, the 12 minor prophets are found, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So of those 12, two of them are only uh, sent to the northern kingdom. Three of them are after the exile, which I'll speak to in a moment. And then six of them were to the southern kingdom of Judah, which is in the pink. And we're going to talk this morning from the book of Joel, who was a prophet to the southern kingdom. But let me just touch on a couple of things about the northern kingdom there uh, regarding Israel. When Amos was sent to the northern kingdom, he actually lived in Judah. He actually lived a little bit south of Bethlehem in a city called to Koa, and God bid him to go north and to speak the word of the Lord. The one thing that's really sort of highlighted in Amos' word is that he's focusing on what we call the horizontal relationship. As a covenant people, we have a vertical relationship with God, and we also have a horizontal relationship, how we should relate to man. The two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a theme that's carried over from the Old Covenant all the way through to what Jesus said in Matthew 22. So when Amos went to the Northern Kingdom, he was saying, listen, you guys are falling down in your love and compassion for people. You have allowed prosperity to overwhelm your thinking and you've allowed it to draw your heart away, not only from me, but also from your fellow man. And so one of the powerful phrases in Amos comes from chapter five where he says, let justice roll like a river. And so he's crying out out against injustice that's occurring in Israel. In particular, the wealthy are taking advantage of the poor. They're levying heavy taxes on them. They're exploiting their labor. They're even selling them as slaves. And so this economic injustice is something that is called out by Amos. He also calls out the wanton living, the extravagant, self-centered, self-absorbed living of the wealthy people. Their winter palaces, their summer palaces, their ivory furniture, their gourmet food, and their private musical galas, all the while completely disconnected from the needs that are out there in society. So Amos is saying, listen, God's people, this is not not a representation of who I am. So he goes to the northern kingdom, reproves them, speaks to them about restoring justice, and really focuses on that horizontal relationship. The second prophet, oh, I should say too, as a result of your total disregard for your fellow man, you're going to be disciplined and judged by God, and you're going to be deported. You're going to be exiled. After that message, Hosea goes. Now, Hosea actually was born and raised in Israel, so he was a son of Israel. And so his ministry was for 25 years. And whereas Amos was focusing on the horizontal, the social aspect, Hosea was really speaking about the vertical aspect. That you have lost your heart for God. That, in fact, you have become a prostitute. And so God set up this very powerful spiritual picture where Hosea went and married a prostitute and had to go through the heartache of someone that was unfaithful to him time and time and time again. Now, unfortunately, some of us have experienced in real life the heartache of unfaithfulness. And maybe we ourselves have been caught up in unfaithfulness. And you know the damage it brings, the ripples that it brings. And so God says to Hosea, I need you to experience my heart because I betrothed myself. I married Israel, but they have continually acted like a prostitute and given themselves to everything but me. And so Hosea goes and he challenges them and he picks up this theme that Amos said that you will be exiled, but he goes even further. He says, I'm going to name who is going to deport you. And when you look at this map here, you see all these enemies that are surrounding Judah and Israel. You've got the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Aram, Phoenicia. All these people could have come in and taken over Israel. But God says, Nope, I'm going to send in the worst of the worst. I'm going to send in the most vile nation. In fact, it's not even a kingdom, it's an empire. It's called the Assyrian Empire. So Hosea has that final revelation, says, You're going to be gone, you're going to be done. Assyria is going to come, and they're going to deport you. So that ends the two prophetic ministries of Amos and Hosea, and that is the word that's given to Israel. Now, I want to just remind us a little bit of this timeline that I shared before, and by the way, I have physical copies of this on the table up front. If after the service you would like it, please come in and grab some of them. But we see this key division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, And as I mentioned, there's 12 prophets, and three of them speak to the northern kingdom. Well, as it turns out, there's another guy there by the name of Jonah. But Jonah does not prophesy to Israel. Neither does he prophesy to Judah. Who does he prophesy to? He prophesies to Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So why is he lumped together with Hosea and Amos for the northern kingdom? Because Jonah's word was so powerful that the entire empire repented from the king on down. That's how powerful the prophetic word is. And because of the repentance, they ended up becoming an instrument of God to discipline Israel later after Hosea and Amos prophesied their word. So this brings the completion after John's two messages and a quick review of all the prophetic words that were given to the northern kingdom. They were exiled. We lost those 10 tribes. they are no more. They did not return. This morning, we're going to be focusing now on the southern kingdom. And as you see in the red here, there's six prophets that we're going to go through. The first one is going to be the prophet Joel. Now, in the same way that God has a signature picture in Amos and in Hosea, there's also a signature metaphor. And that metaphor is around an insect called the locust. And so as we get into this, there's sort of three things I want us to realize about locusts. There's three kinds of of locusts. The first is just a natural locust. Cute little grasshopper, they're fun insects, they jump around. If you have any childhood memories of trying to catch them and them getting away from you, you know how fun they are to be around. Our little kids, they used to catch them, in our yard and put them into little Tupperware boxes and Mimi would get very upset because now they're contaminated by these grasshoppers. But grasshoppers are fun and typically their behavior is they're very solitary. You don't see them clumped together in groups, you don't see them together in swarms, but we're going to see later on God calls these grasshoppers together to do something for him. But the first kind of grasshopper is just the natural grasshopper that um, we see here in this picture. A second kind of locust is what we call spiritual locusts. And here we refer to the dark side of locusts. We're referring to their ability to strip fields of vegetation and wipe out crops. Their ability to bring destruction and devastation. In this case, we speak of locusts as robbing people of life and blessing. Maybe you've been beset with fear all your life, and it's kept you from your full potential. That's the locust at work. Maybe you've battled rejection and have never felt socially at ease. That's the locus at work. Maybe you've been abused in your life and you can't stay in healthy relationships. That's a sign of the locus at work. These are things that we can contend with in our our fallen world that require healing and redemption. This is where the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and to gnaw at your soul, and to erode your confidence, and to take away your God-given image. But Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he comes to give life and to give it abundantly, exceedingly, above and beyond, more than necessary. Our God is a big-hearted God, not this small-hearted, stingy God that just meets out his blessings. The enemy comes to strip us, but God comes to restore us. He comes to restore what the cankworm and the locust have eaten. But there's a third kind of locust, and that's the one that we're focusing on this morning, through the prophet Joel, and that's the locusts of judgment. This is the calamity of locusts that was sent by God. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, and we're going to read some passages here that paint the picture for us of this calamity that descended on the southern kingdom. So in the first chapter here, the Bible says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. So we know the audience. It's not a closed session. It's not a little conference room meeting. He is speaking to the elders, the headship of the nation, and he's speaking to everyone. This is an address to the whole country. Has anything like this happened in your day or in your father's day? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. In other words, Joel is saying, listen, what's coming on the land is going to be so burned into your memory because nothing like this has ever happened, nor will it happen again. Tell it to your sons and let your sons tell it to their sons because I want this memory to be perpetual. That's why God put this book into the Bible. Then he goes on to describe what this calamity is. When the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust shall eat. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust will come. If you've gone on YouTube or if you've seen hordes of locusts, it's just a terrible scene. And so Joel is saying, listen, I'm sending one horde, and they're going to do unimaginable destruction, but I'm going to send a second wave, and a third wave, and a fourth wave. This is going to be unrelenting, unremitting, and I am going to do my job through these locusts. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. So Joel is now speaking in first person. And by the way, this is something important when you read the Bible, that the voice change, the voice perspective, will change quickly between verses. So here we have a voice change. For a nation has invited my, invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So what is he talking about? This nation that's invaded his land. Now Joel is identifying right, with his people. This invasion that's coming is invading my nation, and it's these locusts, and they have the fangs of a lioness and the teeth of a lion. And even though there's these little fluttery insects, that's the impact that they have. He has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinter. It's stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Alas, for the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near, and he will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then he goes on to describe what this whole scene is like. It's a day of darkness and gloom. A day of darkness and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. Who is this great and mighty people? It's these locusts. There's never been anything like it, nor there will be again to the years of many generations. Fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. It's a a picture, a very vivid picture of the kind of destruction that they have on the land. Everything is lush before, but when they come through, turns it into nothing. Nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horse, like war horses. So they run. With the noise of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains. So he's using military imagery to his people because they understand chariots. They understand war horses. The Israelis, the Jewish people, are some of the greatest military warriors in the world. So he's speaking their language. He's saying, you know, all those things that you've seen and done through Joshua and through Moses and how we defeated all the Canaanites of the land, this horde will be just like them. Crackling like a flame of fire, consuming the stubble like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. The Lord utters his voice before his army. These locusts are his personal army doing his bidding. His camp is very great for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome and who can endure it? And that's the point is God is making this invasion unbearable. He's getting to that point. He's deliberately sending them so that they will cry uncle and say, I can't take this Lord. I need to turn back to you. Indeed, who can endure the day of the Lord. Now when you talk about locusts, these locusts can multiply. As I said early on, natural locusts are just little individual grasshoppers jumping around, but they can kick into a second phase in their development where they develop wings. And at that point they release pheromones and they start hoarding together and they become this swarm large enough to cover 460 square miles. That's an entire city. 460 Square miles would cover New West over 80 times, would cover Burnaby 10 times, would cover Vancouver 8 times, would cover Surrey 4 times. So this gives us a picture in the mind that we are talking total darkness that's created by this swarm. So when this swarm comes upon Judah and comes upon Jerusalem, it's just absolutely terrifying. The density of the locust has been calculated to be in the billions. And what these locusts do is they have a voracious appetite. They eat everything in sight. In fact, they can eat up to over 400 million pounds of plant, and they can travel over five to 7,000 miles. So imagine yourself sitting there in the land, and this black cloud comes, and you think, oh, it'll be over in a little bit, and your eyes are searching on the horizon for some sunlight, like we look for the weather breaking, darkness, upon darkness, upon darkness, upon darkness. And so then they come, and given the scale of this invasion, Joel says this, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. In Amos, the prophet said, "The lion is roaring from Zion." But here in this passage, Joel is saying God is blowing the trumpet. Except this time, He's blowing the trumpet to Judah, the southern kingdom. It's a signal that we need to pee. Uh, we need to heed and pay attention, just like the lights on a police car or the sirens on an ambulance. When you hear it, you go, "Okay, I need to stop." And the use of trumpets in Israel's day was extremely significant. It used to be a way that the whole nation would be convened. In Moses' day, God told him, I want you to make two silver trumpets, and you're going to use this to call the people. If there's going to be a national assembly, both of the trumpets are to be sounded. If only the leaders are to be called, only sound one trumpet. When you have feasts, I want you to blow the trumpet, and when you go to war, I want you to blow these trumpets. So what was the significance of Joel saying, blow the trumpet in Zion? It wasn't for a feast. It wasn't for the nations to move out. And it wasn't even going to war. In this case, Joel's sounding of the trumpet was not Israel going against their enemies. It was the sound of God going to war against the sins of the people. After decades of disobedience, a day of reckoning had come. Now this is how justice works. Justice works because there has to be accountability. In the end, the reason why there's the force of law against criminals is because there is a day of reckoning that will come. There is a day of accountability where you're going to have to give account for your stealing, for your lying, for your cheating, for your defrauding, for your exhorting, for your extortion, for your murder. There is a day of accountability. If there's no day of accountability, just keep sinning being a criminal. And so God is saying to Israel, a day of reckoning has come. It's the day of the Lord. But the people are in such spiritual decline and in such a stupor that they had no idea that this was going to happen. But the people should not have been taken by surprise. They should not have needed for the trumpet to be blown because God told them long ago that seasons of severe judgment would come, if they did not obey him. And we hear the terms of the covenant given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. God said, listen, of all the people in the world, you're going to be my people. But here's the terms of being a covenant people. He said, if you obey me, I will bless you upon blessings upon blessings. If you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, God will set you high above all the nations of the earth this little tiny dot of a nation. I'm going to set you above Babylon. I'm going to set you above Assyria. I'm going to set you above every nation in the earth. Even today, we have this little picture of Israel, this little dot on the map, and they dominate the headlines. They are so successful. They make an impact way beyond their size because there's still a covenant blessing at work. God said, if you obey me, My blessings will overtake you. You'll be blessed in the city, in the country, the offspring of your body, your basket, your kneading bread. Blessed when you go in and blessed when you come out. And it goes on for another seven verses. God is not afraid to bless us. He's not afraid to bless us in big, big ways. But what happens is the blessing gets a hold of our heart and we forget the blesser. And we get caught up. In all the blessing, and our hearts just get so enamored with all those things. Well, there's a flip side to this whole equation. He says, not only will you be blessed if you follow me, but you're going to be cursed if you disobey me. So it says, if you do not obey the Lord your God to obey his commandments and statutes, which I charge you, these curses will come upon you and overtake you. In the same way that the blessings will overtake you, now the curses will overtake you. You won't be blessed in the city, you're going to be cursed. You won't be blessed in the countryside, you're going to be cursed. Your kneading bowl will not be blessed, it's going to be cursed. So he inverts the whole equation. I encourage all of you in your Bible studies to study Deuteronomy 28. And in this case, the curses go on for another 47 verses. God is like making it really clear to them, here are your boundary lines. Make sure you understand the terms of being my special people. But as it goes on here, we find in verse 38 and 42, You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. There it is. Judah should not have been surprised because God had already told them. And yet God sent Joel to remind the nation in no uncertain terms, the locust that I'm sending upon you and the land is my covenantal judgment for your protracted, prolonged disobedience. That's human nature. We are given to prolonged seasons of just being away from God, running away from God. And God's heart is merciful and it's long-suffering and he's waiting us for us to return. But when it doesn't happen, then he has to send in the locusts. And they're an army sent directly from him. In calling forth these grasshoppers, God stripped the fields, took away their crops, took away their food supply, crippled their economy, and ravaged them with uncertainty. God used circumstantial force to punish the people. He hit them in their stomachs, they have nothing to eat now. He hit them in their wallet. Their livelihood was gone. Their bushels of wheat and all the things that they're going to sell. The economy is completely turned upside down. He hit them in their livelihood, and he hit them in their emotion. You couldn't escape God's army of locusts. And why did God do this? To turn their hearts back to him. That's how much force it takes to, to break down a hard heart. You think concrete is hard? You think steel is strong? There's nothing more hard than a stone-cold heart. So God built in discipline right into his covenant, and he said that he would use circumstantial force to get people's attention. Now, when we become thick-headed, we become very stubborn, and when we insist on our way, sometimes God has to use external pressure has God had to use circumstantial pressure to get your attention? It's not his preference, but to protect us and save us, he will do that. And so God sent the plague of locusts to sober the people and help them to come to their senses. His desire that their heart would start turning ever so slightly, start turning back. They would start getting clear in their minds, oh, wait a minute, all this blessing, all this... Sort of national pride that we have, this notoriety that we have among the nations, it's actually from God. And so Joel implores them return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Now, how does God know that you actually are not faking it? How does God actually know that you're serious about returning to Him? Because something happens in your behavior. I'm going to give up food and I'm going to be crying. Not crocodile tears. Now, we all know how we love food. If you give up food, you better believe that's a sign you're serious with God. And so he says, listen, if you're serious, go to fasting, go to mourning, go to weeping. Weeping is a sign of of the emotions, the inner life and the inner world that we live in. He said, rend your heart and not your garments. So here's the thing. We can be religious. We can rend our garments and, oh, God, this and, oh, God, that, and I'm going to respond, I'm going to do this and that, but God doesn't care. That's called religion. God wants the heart. Return to the Lord with your heart, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Like I said at the very beginning when we introduced this series, God's default is compassion and grace and grace and abounding in loving kindness. That's, that's where he wants to return to. That's what he wants you to taste and see and that how he is good. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. Again, we come back to the fact God wants to bless. God wants to bless. So the purpose of judgment is so that he can actually show you mercy. His discipline is his love at work. He wields the rod to protect us and spare us from more evil and demise. And so, when the heart turns, and when Joel is imagining and prophesying and picturing that the people, in fact, will begin to turn back to the Lord, he says this in verse 15: Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Now, this is the second time he said, Blow a trumpet. But now it's for a different reason, for a different purpose. It's for repentance. Rather than sounding the warning alarm, now it's about we're going to get our lives right with God. Is the Spirit of God blowing a trumpet in your life? Is there something that you need to reverse or turn around or stop? Do you hear the Spirit blowing the trumpet? in your life about a particular area, then you need to heed it. It's the Spirit speaking to your heart. Spirit speaking to your conscience. Spirit speaking to you, that that protection that you need. It's for your safety and for your good. Now, the the book of Joel is only three chapters long, and I've preached through already 50% of it. The last 50% of Joel is all about the blessings of God. You return to him, and he's going to cause the blessings to come back to you. And so we read these verses, 25, 24, 28, 28. I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust. In the King James, it says the canker worm. The gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. I'm going to restore everything. The threshing threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then God gives not only this promise of restoration, he prophesies. All of a sudden, Joel puts on the binoculars and he sees 2,000 years down the way. And in 28 and 29, it says, After this, after I bless my people again, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Okay, Bible quiz. When did this happen? Acts chapter 2. Day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit fell on those 120 people in the upper room, and by the way, they were there because Jesus said, Don't leave Jerusalem until you've been endued with power on high. So 120 people, they go seek the Lord. They're seeking the Lord for about two weeks. And in a morning prayer meeting, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit comes with such power, there's the sound of a hurricane in the city. And everyone is rushing to where the sound is. And it's these 120 people, and they look drunk with the Holy Spirit because they're so happy. They're like... This is amazing, the presence of God and the power of God. And so the people go, man, these these are really silly people. And Peter gets up under the interpretation of the Holy Spirit, quotes this very verse that we're studying right here, and says, this is being fulfilled right now, right here. I am pouring out my spirit on you. This is my covenant process, a uh, promise. This is why Jesus went to the cross so that every single person could have the spirit and not just the high priest and not just the prophets and not just the kings. God is into distributing himself completely to everyone. It's the first sharing economy that ever occurred. We talk about Uber, we talk about Airbnb and the whole sharing economy. God had the first sharing economy. I'm sharing my divine power with everyone. It's the first viral strategy where he wants everyone to catch it. And so this was a moment. And Joel prophesied this. It was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. But that's not where I want to end my message this morning. I want to end my message this morning in Mark chapter 1, verse 6. Because this is where the gospel code in Joel is recorded. So this is the best part about studying the Old Testament and studying the minor prophets is that there's foreshadows of Jesus. There's foreshadows of the good news. There's foreshadows of the gospel. And when we dig for it, it's like finding hidden treasure. It's like panning for goals. Like, wow, here it is. All that work, that truth, that understanding, that revelation delights our soul. So like we said, and like Pastor John taught us, From Hosea, when he went out and he married this prostitute time and time again, she was unfaithful to him. But God said, go and spend all your money to get her back. How many of us would do that after you've been hurt and stabbed in the heart over and over again, that you would actually continue to go love someone unconditionally? And not only that, drain your bank account, drain your life savings to go after this woman whom you have no guarantee that she'll continue to be faithful to you. But that's a picture of the heart of God. Jesus spent his entire life to get you back. He died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. He sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane. That's the gospel code that was right there in Hosea. And so every book of the prophets, there's this powerful gospel code and God has deliberately buried the headline. You know, in journalism, there's a technique called burying the headline. They give you these little teaser things, and they don't give you the headline because they want you to read page three, page five, page nine. It's how they get you, your eyeballs, to be sticky. Because if you can get the main point reading the headlines, you're not going to purchase the newspaper. So they bury the headline. And so you go, oh, man, there's a little, what's this thing that's going on with, you know, Megan and, and Harry? Right? Oh, you have to turn to page six to find it. Oh, maybe I need to buy the newspaper in right, order to really get the whole story. It's a journalistic technique, it's based on curiosity. And so God invented this curious technique of burying the headline in the prophets so that we'll get in there and we'll go, what is actually going on? And so in then Hosea chapter three, it's not in the first chapter, it's not even in the first verse, but in Hosea chapter three, we find where the headline is, where the gold is. Well, the same thing that we see here in the prophet Joel. The headline's buried, but it's revealed for us in Mark chapter 1, verse 6. And so what does this say here? It says, John, as in John the Baptist, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and, read it together with me, his diet was locusts and honey. What's going on here? We always think that John the Baptist is this wild and crazy dude and so fierce and we don't want to be around him. But he was imaging the gospel. He was imaging the New Testament. He was eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner locusts and honey. Church, what does it say to us? In Christ, all the judgments and condemnations are consumed. We eat locusts. The locusts don't eat us. No more judgment over our head. No more condemnation over our head because Jesus took the curse and the condemnation for us. We don't have to fear the locusts. We don't have to fear the swarms. Jesus became the curse on the tree for you and for me. And so John is having this breakfast morning and noon and night and he is getting amped up. I get to declare this message to the nation of Israel. Every time he was eating the locust with his left hand, he's thinking, oh, this is Old Testament. This is Old Testament theology. This is judgment and condemnation. Then he reaches with his right hand for honey. Ah, this is the new covenant. This is honey. This is the sweetness of the gospel. The honey triumphs over the locusts. And so we get to receive and to enjoy the blessing of what Jesus did. What a complete picture of redemption that we have in Jesus when we put our faith in him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus became the curse for us. Isn't it cool to see how the gospel is written in the Old Testament? I hope it spurns you on. I hope it creates a little bit of appetite in you to say, man, I need to study the Bible like Pastor John and Pastor Rich you know, we don't have extra spiritual IQ. We're, we can study, you can study the Bible just like us, right? We're, we're not super smart in this way. We just say, Jesus, help us. We have to speak to 150 people on Sunday morning, and then God helps us. You get to dig out the gold. You can pan for these precious nuggets. So this morning, let me close in, with these comments. Have you been hearing a trumpet sound in your life? Blow the trumpet in Zion. In the new covenant, Zion is the church. The Spirit of God is constantly speaking to the church. That's why it says in Revelations, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But if you're asleep, you can't hear. If you're drowsy, you can't hear. If you're not in an awakened state, you cannot hear. That's why the Spirit is constantly trying to move us to a place of a awakened state. Are you hearing the trumpet sound in your life? Is God trying to get your attention about something? Has he been sending circumstantial pressure for you to think about your life a little differently? Have you slid back to this place of comfort and you're anesthetized by that comfort, which is what happened with Judah and with Israel? And Joel said, return to God with all your heart. God is there to meet you and to turn your curse into a blessing and to turn the locusts into honey. So God, we look to you right now. We thank you for this powerful word that was given to Joel and how he challenged Judah to come back to you. How despite the the absolute terror and the horror of these locusts swarming the land and chewing up everything, there was redemption and restoration. And God, we've all made mistakes, and we've all allowed locusts to come where you've had to send it because of our disobedience. But God, we thank you that in Jesus, you will restore what the locusts and cankerworm have eaten. So God, cause our hearts to be tender this morning and soft. Let us be responsive to you so that we can be properly aligned with you. We can properly receive the massive blessings that you have for us in Jesus. We give you thanks and we give you honor for your word now in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: The word that Rich preached today, especially how he brought out this aspect that joe talks about of locusts and then he ends it with how john the baptist eats locusts it's a sign of the gospel that we need to hear today and i believe there are people here today that need to hear this that god is going to break things that are in your past that god is going to to break things that are holding you back things that were judgments that were thrown against you things that you feel like that you deserve because of the th- choices that i made but god is saying i'm gonna crush those things yeah. Yeah. that the yeah. locusts are no longer gonna be there and i'm gonna bring honey honey is god's word that are sweeter that is sweet to our lips Honey is God's blessing and God's outpour of what is good. He brings us to the land of milk and honey, that the word of God is sweeter than honey on our lips. This is the gospel for us today. And I do believe that God is going to use especially this illustration of the Old Testament of Joel saying God's... Judgment will come upon you like locusts, but in the new covenant and under God, under under what God has promised us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He's like I will break these things and locusts and judgment shall not be upon you, and that all of these things will be crushed because of Jesus Christ, and that is what the gospel is about. And so this message that Rich preached today is powerful in a way that it. Reveals to us God's heart, God's heart of what is old, I will take and I will redeem and I will give you a fresh, something new, sweet like honey. And that is in Jesus Christ. That is such good news. And every single one of these minor prophets points to Jesus And points to that gospel for us. So God is calling you just as he's used Joel to call out Judah and say, consecrate yourself, repent, and come to me. For I am the one that will deliver you. For I am the one that will bring you into a new place. But you need to come to me. Consecrate yourself. And I will renew. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this message. Lord, that this message is a message of hope. This message is a message of your call and your heart to our lives. And Lord, as you call your church, may we respond in a way that submits and humbles ourselves to come before you to receive your blessing. But that we look towards Jesus, knowing that your son died for all of this. And that we come under that righteousness and receive. All we do is receive your blessing. Receive your redemption. Receive your righteousness. In all of these things, Lord, we come before you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.